0: and welcome to the Parabiblica for the Perplexed. This month, I'll be covering one of the most unique texts from the Parabiblica, the third book of the Sibylline Oracles. The vast majority of texts of the Parabiblica that are attributed to a figure are attributed to a notable biblical or otherwise legendary Jewish figure, and rightfully so. They were written specifically for Jewish audiences, and so used figures Jews viewed as authoritative. This was not universally the case, however. While rabbinic Jews of the Second Temple period and onward were and are starkly opposed to proselytization, this was not the case in all Jewish circles, particularly those in the Hellenistic Jewish community of Alexandria. This community wrote and circulated a rich corpus of works urging Judaism, Jewish values, and conversion to Judaism, all attributed not to Jewish figures, but to Hellenic ones. These include historians, philosophers, poets, playwrights, and even theological figures from Greek culture. While all of these works are occasionally grouped together in the pseudepigrapha, only the final category can, in my opinion, be considered parabiblica. The most notable among all of these works is a collection of works referred to as the Sibylline Oracles. These books must be understood within the context of Hellenistic history and legend, as well as Jewish. Throughout the Greek and Roman world, there were local prophetesses referred to as sibyls. These prophetesses were generally associated with Apollo and delivered prophecies in frenzies likely induced by drug usage. The legendary and probably fictional Roman king Tarquinius Superbus is considered in Roman myth to have purchased three volumes of prophecy from a collection of nine books of valuable prophecy from a sibyl at Cume, an Italian city, which were used throughout the subsequent Roman Republic until 83, when the official copies were burned in the Jupiter Temple fire. Later, Rome sent out a search for surviving copies and fragments, but the damage had been done. What had once been already a sample from a broader literature became an even more fluid and informal corpus, which was capitalized on by many groups who wished to use the authority of the sibyls to influence the Hellenists. Jews, and later Christians, Gnostics, and possibly even Pagans, contributed to this growing body of literature. This ill-defined corpus eventually coalesced into a collection of 14 books, two of which exclusively contain material from the other 12, and so are generally disincluded from discussion. This collection makes no distinction between material authored by Jews and material authored by Gentiles, and because of the fluidity of these texts, it is unlikely that that information was actually ever really known. Even among scholars today, there is huge debate as to which texts are Jewish and from what period they originate. Generally, books 3 through 5 are considered to be almost certainly Jewish, but beyond that, opinions range from nearly all of the other books having some Jewish elements corrupted by Christian editions to being all entirely Christian documents. What is consensus, however, is that the third and longest book of the collection is the oldest and the most Jewish in character. It is generally thought to have three sources of material an introduction consisting generally of moral teachings that may well have once been part of a, part of or even the conclusion of a completely separate book, a main section, which tends to follow a familiar apocalyptic formula, and a Yeshua or Isaiah-style collection of oracles against other peoples inserted into the main section, probably at a later date. I shall discuss them in that order. The introduction, as we have it, begins with a description of the civil asking God to give her some respite but she nonetheless continues to prophesy. This introduction to the various sections will continue to be a persistent element. This may be an attempt to relate the condition of the civils to that of various reluctant prophets in Judaism, such as Yonah or Moshe. The civil criticizes idolatry by comparing the physical vessels of idols to God, who she describes as omnipotent, timeless, and all-creating. Interestingly, these views of God are very consistent with those of the Judean Jewish community at the time despite the Alexandria Jewish community generally having held onto a more monolithistic style of worship for longer. She warns that idolatry is the path to wickedness and will not save its adherents in the end. At this point, the text seems to switch to an entirely separate source, predicting the fall of Rome after its dominance of the Mediterranean by a kingdom of God. These types of oracles inserted into other pieces of text will only be more common. Rome is replaced by Beliar, a demon probably best known from the Book of Jubilees, who will lead men astray until he too is defeated by the kingdom of God. Finally, a seemingly monastic queen will rise up, likely an allusion to Cleopatra, and during her reign, God's judgment will finally take place. This is followed by a short fragment declaring that God will return to the world, which may be a later Christian edition, which concludes the introduction. The main oracles of the book are generally narrative apocalypses, and have been split up into various subdivisions by different scholars. The first begins with a description of the Tower of Babel, generally in line with its description in Genesis, followed by a narrative of the titans of Greek mythology. This may seem out of place in a Jewish text, but it's worth noting that in many circles around the Hellenistic world, particularly both Jewish and philosophical ones, the gods of Greek mythology were often viewed as having once existed or still extant, but actually only as powerful figures, or humans, that were worshipped after their death, rather than actually being gods. This approach is helpful to understanding many Jewish texts at the time, such as the Jewish portions of the Greek Magical Papyri, the Testament of Solomon, and of course the Sibylline literature. This version of the Titans myth is certainly reminiscent of the more familiar narrative from Hesiod's Theogony. However, in this narrative, Gaia and Uranus have three sons, named Cronos, Titan, and Aeptus, and split the world between them, a narrative bearing similarity to that of Noach splitting the land between his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the name Japheth in particular bearing similarity to Ieptus. They abide by these borders peacefully until the death of their father, when the Titans turn on each other and transgress the boundaries. They are brought to peace by the female goddesses, and they choose Kronos to lead them, but Titan only agrees to this on the condition that Kronos will have no male children so that after Kronos dies, Titan can take the throne. Because of this, every male child of Kronos is killed, until Rhea, Kronos' wife, has twins. Hera, a female, is born first, so the Titans leave, and only afterwards is the male Zeus born, to be raised in secret in Anatolia. Similarly, Poseidon and Pluto are spared. When the Titans find out, they imprison Kronos and Rhea, word of which reaches the sons of Kronos, who begin the first war on Earth against the Titans. Seeing this, God kills all the families of Titan and Kronos, but the damage had been done. Following their example, other kingdoms also began making war on each other, starting the long cycle of empires that was still ongoing. This story bears a lot of similarity to the narrative of fallen angels bringing war to the world, only for their offspring, the giants, to wage war against each other, prompting a great judgment. This adaptation may serve as a critique of Greek mythology for its glorification of war. The next subdivision of the main material begins with a description of the various empires that will rise upon the earth, a favorite topic among the sublime material. This of course ends with Rome, who will descend into evil and haughtiness until a Hellenistic king of Egypt rises up and the Jews rise to prominence once again, likely a reference to the pro-Jewish Ptolemy VI. This description, and others like it, may serve as a crucial window to our understanding of Jewish Hellenistic missionary strategies. By likening the plight of the Jews under various empires to those of other peoples under Hellenistic rule through descriptions of common experiences, Judaism seems less foreign a concept. This description synthesizes the positive times for Jews with the positives for other nations, and vice versa. The next subdivision begins by predicting various bad tidings that will lead up to the eschaton, or end of the world. First, the titans will be destroyed. Then, the Trojan War will export violence and evil across the world and inspire a number of regional conflicts, which are named. An example of how Hellenistic mythology is incorporated into the Hellenistic world outside of Greece. The text then describes the Jews as an exception, a righteous race compared to the vice everywhere else. The text stresses that Jews do not follow many of the useless superstitions from around the Hellenistic world, which may be a reference to the Greek magical papyri and similar amulet practices, although this is notably false, as there are many Jewish examples of these types of magic. It also stresses that the Jews' generosity and lack of greed, eerily predictive of a major theme of medieval Jewish apologetica. The text then goes on to briefly summarize the Moshe story, including the Exodus and Revelation at Sinai, stressing the belief that the earth was made for all people and that the laws of the Torah are based on objective logic, likely an effort to make Judaism more broadly appealing. The text then similarly describes in brief the exile in Babel, Babylon, before the eventual restoration under Persia, as an example of how even the Jews will not be completely spared of the spread of evil. This setup paints Jews as an example to other nations of how they can restore their status by returning to God. At this point in the text as we have it now, there's a long string of oracles against other nations. However, as I mentioned before, these were likely added later. So I will be skipping to where the original text likely continued and coming back to this section at the end. The next subdivision, which may have been written as an introduction to the one that will follow it, begins as a warning for the Phoenicians and other maritime peoples that they will be destroyed for their evil, with special emphasis placed on their judgment for speaking theological falsities, which seems somewhat an ironic sentiment from a pseudepigraphon, that is, a work written specifically to seem written by someone besides its actual author. It continues to predict the destruction of various peoples, concluding that all people will be judged, so it is excessive to list them all. The text then pays special attention to Greece, which it claims will be destroyed by successive invasion, famine, drought, and fire. It claims these will reduce the population to a third, This system of cataclysm by thirds bears similarity to the claims in the Christian Revelations, where, for example, one-third of all the trees are destroyed and one-third of the waters are made poisonous. The text then begins to address the Greek people directly, although this may be understood as referring to the whole of the Hellenistic world, and likewise for many of the references specifically to Greece. It criticizes them for following idolatry, Greek polytheism, and Greek kings, even though following these forces has not made them successful for hundreds of years. It goes on to say that many tragedies will fall the Greeks as long as they continue in this service, until eventually they will be freed once again by turning to the temple of God. Notably, this might not be a reference to the Jerusalem temple. Egypt actually had its own Jewish temple at the time, the temple of the land of Onias, established and run by priests ousted from the Jerusalem temple during the Maccabean period and this temple likely operated in a more Hellenistic fashion than the more well-known one at Jerusalem. The history of this temple and the Elephantine Temple that preceded it are both fascinating topics in their own right that shed a lot of insight into the Jewish community of Egypt. The text then predicts the great rewards coming for Jews who are described as pious, especially in regards to their respect of the temple, sanctity of marriage, and their refusal to have sex with male children the last of which may be the earliest example of apologetica on Jewish views on homosexuality, similar to today's similar argument that it is pedophilia rather than homosexuality that is prohibited in the Torah. Because the Jews observe these virtues in contrast to their neighboring peoples, they will be saved from calamity and rewarded. It is interesting that the Sibylline material employs a similar contrast as many other apocalyptic works. Almost universally, apocalypses, including the Sibylline oracles, outline a strong dualism between a righteous group to be rewarded and saved and the sinful group, which will be punished and destroyed. And it urges its readers to abandon the sinful group and join the righteous. However, in most apocalypses, which are written to Jews, the sinful group is sinful Jews and the righteous group is righteous Jews, and the sinful Jews are urged to become righteous. While in the Sibylline material, which is written to Hellenistic Gentiles, all of Jews are portrayed as righteous and all of the Gentiles are portrayed as sinful, and therefore urged to join the former group by converting. It is predicted that Egypt will be overcome by a king from Asia, which could be a reference to a number of conquests, who will fill the land with evil and calamity. The Hellenists are then directly told to turn to monotheism, and the text seems to make the claim that the earth itself will serve them, possibly a reference to the various miracles associated with the splitting of the sea a narrative that would have been especially prominent to Egypt's Jewish community. The text then presents a pretty standard apocalypse. Kingdoms will fall and many calamities will strike the land until a savior king comes and brings peace to the land in accordance with God's law. What makes this passage interesting is that the king is referred to as a king from the sun, which may be a reference to the Egyptian sun disk god Aten, which has, at some points in history, been associated with monotheism because of its more abstract nature. If this is true, the reference is to an Egyptian monotheistic messiah rather than a Jewish one, possibly in a similar fashion to how the Persian Cyrus the Great is described as a messiah. It could also, however, be a reference to the idea of the messiah being born of a star, like how Bar Kokhba means son of the star, or of Bethlehem signaling the birth of Jesus in the gospel narrative. The next subdivision begins with a description of a sack of the temple by many kingdoms because of its wealth a concern possibly spreading from the Maccabean narrative of the temple robbery. God will execute judgment on them and continue to all peoples in the earth described in a fairly long fire and brimstone paragraph. This is followed by a description of the salvation of the righteous, who will be protected from the danger both of the natural events and from other nations. Interestingly, they are referred to as sons of God, a title that would be later used and interpreted literally for Jesus and other messianic claimants. The other nations see this treatment and also turn to God, abandoning idolatry. It urges the Greeks to be on the right side of this conflict to come, employing certain Greek proverbs that do not seem to make sense today but would have been familiar to the Greeks at the time, a feature common to the civils. The book describes the reward for the righteous, which includes peace, a universal just law, and an abundance of food and drink. There is a brief passage against sexual sins that may have been moved from a different part of the corpus as it seems out of place. After this, the text continues to describe the kingdom at the end of the world. The kingdom will bring lasting peace, and in this time, travel will become easy so that all can come to God's temple, which will be the only temple still standing. Prophets are appointed as judges, and animals live peacefully with each other, as described in the Nevi'im al later prophets. The sibyl gives a few signs that this will happen. Swords appearing in heaven, dust covering the earth, rocks dripping blood, and a battle in the sky. Many of these signs are shared in other apocalyptic works, demonstrating the wide breadth of these sort of symbols as ideas predicting the end times. The book concludes by addressing many views on who the Sybil is, which were common speculations in the Hellenistic world, dismissing all but one of them as untruthful. The Sybil identifies herself as the daughter-in-law of Noach and explains that she got much of her information from him. This association of the Sybil with Noach is common in early Jewish and Christian circles, and would go on to become especially prominent in Gnosticism, where Noria, the wife of Noach, is an especially prominent figure. At this point, I will discuss the warnings to other nations that were inserted into the main work, but at a later date. While these oracles were likely later, they were probably not significantly so. Much like the main content, it begins with the civil asking for a respite from prophecy, but once again being compelled to continue speaking. These oracles begin with a general oracle against many historic enemies of Israel, including Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and and Magog, who are interestingly said to be in Ethiopia, rather than the more common idea of their residence in the unexplored areas of the north of the Near East. Libya's destruction is described in extra detail because the text claims that they are responsible for the destruction of the temple, a detail that seems just anachronistic. They will be struck by a demon of famine and pestilence, a description similar to that of the horsemen in the book of Revelation around 300 years later. There are once again a few signs of these times, namely many pits opening to swallow cities, which are named. Next, the text focuses on Rome. All the persecutions of Rome on the east are to be reversed tenfold by the east back on Rome. Rome will be cast out and bring with it all the afflictions of the east, including tyranny, famine, and war. This general association of Rome with all of Judea's woes would only become more prominent and contribute to the Jewish-Roman wars as well as the eventual association of Rome with Esau, Esau, and his persecution. Next, the Sybil describes, in what is presented as a prediction but actually occurred after the fact, The rise of Alexander the Great and his various successors, likening the history to the animals in the apocalyptic section of Daniel, which historians view as also being a post-facto description of Alexander and other rulers over Judea. The text predicts many disasters for Greek cities around the Mediterranean, and also briefly describes Homer as one who will take the predictions of the civil and rewrite them to his own end, an attempt to use the well-established authority of an author known to the Hellenists like Homer to boost that of the Sybil. This very long and decently repetitive passage about Greek cities bears much similarity to other descriptions of calamities from across the civilized material and other apocalypses, although it is notable for including specific historical and mythological references from these places, showing that the author was steeped in the culture of the Hellenistic world and used that to their advantage. And so concludes this episode of the Parabiblica for the Perplexed, The Sibylline Oracles, though often directionless and repetitive, is one of the best windows available to us into the Jewish Hellenistic world. It shows how Jewish and Hellenistic culture, mythology, and history affected each other and the role of the Jewish community in Alexandria played in both Jewish and Hellenistic history. This fascinating subculture may have been destroyed 250 years later in the Ketos War, but while it stood, it had an undeniable impact on the development of both ancient Christianity and Judaism. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to someone else who may find it interesting, and come back next month for Parabiblica for the Perplexed. Psalmonic literature continued.